Open with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to continue our study through the book of Acts, and we won't hit every chapter and every verse, but through the book of Acts, we are going to get this picture of what the church is and what the church does. Back in Matthew's gospel, Jesus made a remarkable promise. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But what is the church? How do we know what a church is, and how do we know what a church is supposed to do? Well, last week we defined church, just the word itself. Again, the, the Greek is just, it means a gathering, a group of people that are called out for a particular purpose. But when we talk about the church that is in Jesus Christ, we are talking about a people that are called out by God for the purpose of worshiping God. That is the great purpose that all of us were created for, to worship God. The church is a gathered group of people who are worshipers of God, which means the church is made up of saved people, those who are saved by grace through faith. It's made up of those who have confessed and believed that Jesus Christ is Lord. The church is saved people. But when we talk about that, we can talk about the church in a couple of different contexts. There's the universal church. Men and women saved from every tribe and tongue and nation that we will never meet this side of heaven, but who worship the same Lord under the power of the same Spirit, maybe in a different language, with different songs, with a different liturgy, a different process, but they are part of the body of Christ just as we are. And then we talk about the local church, the chapel cities, the local bodies of believers that regularly gather together for the purpose of worship and instruction and encouragement and all of those one another's that are graciously given to the church for us to carry out. And then we looked last week, not only to define church, but to move into that first really distinguishing mark of the church, and that is the work of the Spirit. The church and the Spirit are inseparable. Where there is no Spirit, there is no church. Where there is no Spirit, there is no believer. Those two things don't Uh, They're inseparable. The work of the Spirit is the beginning of what happens in the church. The Spirit is the one that transforms our hearts. The fact that it takes no one who is searching, seeking, no one who is good, and radically transforms our hearts with the gospel, that's a work of the Spirit. The Spirit baptizes us. It identifies us with Christ. The Spirit participates in the cleansing work. The Spirit seals us. It guarantees our eternal inheritance in Christ. And then at the very end of last week, we touched on this idea that the Spirit empowers the church. The Spirit enables the church to do the work that God has called the church to do. And that bears a little bit more discussion, so that's where we're going to go today. We're going to understand that the presence of the Holy Spirit yields results. It produces something in the lives of God's people. To be a part of the church, to be a church rightly called the church, is to be a church that is at work. So if you're not there already, find your way to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and we'll cover, again, all the way basically through Acts 2.13 today. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's pray. Lord, when we talk about the Spirit, the Spirit that you've graciously given us, Lord, we're talking about the the means of our worship. Ruined sinners, limited in our capacity, dead in our sins and trespasses, unable to grasp truth, Lord, suddenly made able to see who you are, 
and to respond rightly. And Lord, we know that's only a work of your Spirit. And so we ask today that your Spirit would enable us to do what you've called us to do, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your Word, that you would change our blindness to sight, that you would take our hard, stubborn hearts and soften them toward obedience. Lord, I pray that you would convict us where our preferences and our attitudes and our traditions and our preferences have overridden what your word clearly says. I pray that you would give us clarity and then that you would give us the desire and the will and the ability to obey. All these things come from you. So we worship you, the God who provides. In Christ's name, amen. Now, when we talk about work, we have to make sure that we're very, very clear because at some point, most of us, maybe all of us, either have had a job or will have a job. And uh, when you do a job, there's an expectation of work for reward. I work this many hours doing this particular function, and at the end of that, this is the expected compensation, minus taxes. But we work for a particular thing. When we're talking about the work of the church, I want to be very, very clear right up front that that is not what we are talking about. We are not talking about some kind of transaction where the church works so that we might receive some salvation benefit. Uh, Paul says very, very clearly in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. I don't know that it gets much more clear than that. So understand right from the beginning, when we talk about the church that works, we are talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that then enables us to work out our salvation in these various ways. We're saying that the Holy Spirit does not come in, radically transform a heart, radically renew a mind, radically change every eternal perspective on a person, and then have nothing external happen. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us and makes that kind of change, when we are indwelt with the Spirit, we are enabled to do things then that please God. What does the Spirit produce in our lives? Really, if you boil it down to a basic one-word answer, what does the Spirit produce in our lives? The Spirit produces obedience. The Spirit enables us to obey God as He has called us to. So today we're going to talk about what the Spirit produces in our lives. We're going to talk about how believers function in the gifts of the Spirit. Those are the two broad things, the things that the Spirit produces and then the specific gifts that the Spirit grants. And um, to, to do the spiritual gifts in one sermon is ambitious. And I'm going to tell you, we're actually going to do the spiritual gifts in about a half a sermon, and we're still going to stick to our time frame, probably, close. And there's going to be more that we could go into. Books, conferences, podcasts, all of that. Lots of it helpful. Lots of it divisive. We want to get the non-negotiables, the biblical clarity here, uh, so that we can kind of rest our practice on these principles that really are very, very clear in Scripture. And so today's not going to be exhaustive, but it will be foundational. And if there are disagreements, if there are questions, if there are concerns, I would encourage you to talk to me because God hasn't given us these things to form a divide in the body. He's given us these things so that we might be unified. So the first thing that we're going to look at is the idea that the Holy Spirit produces good fruit in the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit always produces good fruit in the life of a believer. And to start looking at that, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, starting back in verse 1. 
when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And we know that the they is the disciples. But when we talk about the disciples, I think it's important for us to remember exactly who they were. Who are these men that we're talking about? Not their names and not their list of accomplishments, but what kind of people are they at this point in God's Word? If we go back to the book of Matthew, and we haven't been out of it that long, but we remember that there are a number of times where the disciples responded fairly well. Matthew chapter 16, in the context where Jesus promises to build his church, what does Peter say? You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. That is a good thing. When Jesus sends them out in pairs to go do that initial work of preaching and telling people about who he is, they come back with a remarkable report. They spoke the truth. They were able to do exactly what he said they would do, and it was a good thing. But we also know, because the gospel accounts are very honest in the way they portray the disciples, that more often than not, these men are remarkably average at best. They are like us. They demonstrate continual uh, stubbornness, hardness of heart even. Uh, they are not compassionate when it comes to the outcast and the other, especially as you put them next to Christ, who is. Uh, they are not quick to understand the spiritual truths. Uh, they often respond with more questions than they do concrete answers. Uh, even up to the very end, uh, they are the ones that promise to stay with Jesus till he dies and even in death to join him and they flee into the darkness. And even up to the very end, when the women report that the tomb is empty, their initial response is, no, it can't be. It seems like a silly tale to them. And so we have to remember that that's the group that's gathered here. There's a reason that Jesus said in Acts 1, back in verse 8, that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and that they will be his witnesses. At that point, these things were still future. At that point, the mission was there, but they were not able to complete that mission. The command was there, go and make disciples. But before they could go, they had to stay and receive something that was significantly beyond what they were able to get. So that, that on their own. That is, that is who these men were as they're sitting here. But as you look through the book of Acts, and in particular starting here in chapter 2, there's a remarkable transformation in who they become. When we understand who they are, that, that shift to what they become is significant, and it's shocking. Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we focus on that mental picture, and what must have that looked like? I don't know. What, I can barely get my mind around them sitting, uh, praying, maybe fearful of all that was around them. And then this Spirit powerfully and visibly and audibly coming into that place. But the most remarkable thing that happens is that those men are now able to do something they were not before. And we want to talk about the tongues, and we want to talk about what that looks like, and we will. But understand that the most remarkable part of that is they open their mouth and they speak as the Spirit gave them utterance. Note that. Who opened their mouths? God did. They had been given a command, stay and wait. And they did. And when it was time for them to no longer wait, when it was time for them to speak, who gave them the words? It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave them exactly what they needed to obey. God did not say, here's the command, work it out as best you can on your own effort with your own understanding and your own plans. Here's the command, good luck with carrying it out. God commanded his church to do something, and then God gave his church the ability to do what he had commanded them to do. And that's not brand new to this. 
Peter, when he said that good thing, you are the Christ, the son of the risen, or you are this Christ, the son of the living God. What did Jesus say? Good job, you finally figured it out. No, what did he say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Who opened Peter's mouth to speak about Christ? God did. Because on his own, even Peter gets Jesus wrong. He knew him. He walked with him. He'd seen his miracles. But he still wasn't able to capture who Christ was, not without the help of the Father. And as you continue to look through the book of Acts and this radical change that they undergo, it's increasingly evident. Look down with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 12. They speak in tongues. Uh, men of all these different places hear them in their own language. And look at what verse 12 says. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But look at verse 13. But others mocked, saying they are filled with new wine. Now, what does the old Peter do when he's confronted by mocking? What do you think? It's nothing God-honoring. I can promise you that. How does Peter, filled with the Spirit, respond to the questioning and the mocking? You know what he does? Preaches the gospel. And he does it boldly. Look down to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This is who I'm talking about. And by the way, you know him. And if that wasn't enough, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus... You killed him. That does not sound like the same Peter in the courtyard of the high priest, does it? Afraid of a servant girl's accusations, now standing before Jews, saying you know who he was and you put him to death anyway. And yet here's the hope in belief and salvation. That's a bold statement. You turn to Acts 4 and Acts chapter 5 and you read about the testimony of the apostles in front of the religious leaders. The same men that they had fled from, now when they're dragged into their presence, they speak boldly about who Christ is. That is only a work of the Spirit. One of my favorite changes. In Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus is uh, moving through the towns of the Samaritans and uh, there's a town there that rejects him. And uh, James and John, they say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? They're going to reject you, Jesus. Let us call down the lightning on these people. There's a reason they were called the sons of thunder. How do they deal with rejection in the book of Acts? How do they deal with it when they're told to be silent about Christ, when they're imprisoned and when they're beaten? Well, Acts 5.41, it says, they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. On a fundamental level, these are not the same men. They are the same men, but they are radically different. What produces this response, this obedient response, this response of joy even in suffering in the lives of the disciples? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The ones who were gathered in that upper room to wait and pray were not the same when they left. But what's the point? Why was there such a change and why does it matter to us? And the answer is because the Holy Spirit empowers believers. Yes, with regard to the spiritual gifts. And we will get there. That is a critical part of how this functions. But what is it that the Holy Spirit enables us to do? 
The answer is to obey. The Holy Spirit enables the church of Jesus Christ to be a people marked by obedience regardless of their circumstance. You ever ask that question? What makes you and I able to obey in any given situation? Very, very often we separate that answer from the work of God. What is the Holy Spirit supposed to be producing in your life and in my life? We know the answer. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So Galatians 5, and 23 says, we've got to understand that the work of the Spirit in the lives of believers is not centered, is not anchored in the spiritual gifts. Again, critical, and we will get there. But the work of the Spirit in our lives is most often and most clearly demonstrated in regular, growing, God-honoring acts of obedience. How often do we excuse our disobedience and blame it on the circumstance? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Don't like that one. Because here's my response. I would be patient if my circumstances made sense. I would be patient, and believe me, I would. I would be a patient man if people were reasonable. I would be a patient man if I was well-rested, well-fed, if my circumstances lined up. And guess what? It is easier for me to be patient when I'm well-rested. It is easier for me to be patient when I'm not on the brink of starvation, which I know I've never been there before. But it's a biblical truth, and maybe an uncomfortable, but it is an inescapable reality that the Spirit of God at work in me is not dependent on my circumstances. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is not patience so long as I am fill-in-the-blank. Because the Spirit doesn't produce patience when the Spirit is well-rested. The Spirit doesn't produce patience when the Spirit is well-fed. The Spirit doesn't produce patience when things go according to how the Spirit thinks they should. The Spirit is God, very God who doesn't rest, who doesn't slumber, who doesn't need anything. And he empowers me to obey in every circumstance. The fruit of the Spirit is. And here's the hard truth. Every time that I respond in something other than the fruit of the Spirit, every time I respond in something other than love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, every time something else comes out of me. It is not the response of a circumstance, it's the response of sin. It, it is not because where I'm at, it's because that is what is overflowing out of my heart. And boy, do I struggle with that. I, I even struggle with that for my kids. Somebody mistreats one of your kids and they get picked on and they push your kid to the point and then one of your kids, you know, pushes back. One of my kids' case, punches him in the nose. And I want to say, in my flesh, well, that other kid probably had it coming. At least you defended yourself. And yet God has said that we recognize that sin is harmful, that sin hurts. That when people pick on us, people pick on our kids, people misunderstand us and mistreat us, that that doesn't feel right, that sin breaks those things. And yet, in the midst of that, we are called to respond rightly. 
in teaching that for our children, and more important, in modeling that ourselves, and here's what I need the constant reminder of, is that there's great hope in that. You say, that's really hard. I don't see the hope in that. There's tremendous hope in the understanding that we are not ruled by our circumstances, but that our circumstances are ruled over by a sovereign God who has enabled us to obey in those circumstances. How hopeless would it be if we walked around telling people that you can be pleasing to God as long as you have fill in the blank, time? How often do I struggle with my attitude because I don't think I have time to do what I think I need to do? What I need is a radically transformed mind that understands that God in his sovereignty has given me the time that he's given me. And so I can respond to being behind with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because whatever circumstance I'm in, he sovereignly placed me there for his glory and for my good. And so frustration makes no sense. We need to train ourselves. We need to continually move into each other's lives with the encouragement that not Not that we pat one another on the back and say, there, there, I'm sorry you're going through that, although there is a place to weep for those who weep. That's not what I'm saying. We need to move into each other's lives with the encouragement that God is at work in this situation, that God has given you the ability to honor him in this. And I will walk with you through whatever painful steps that takes so that you and I can both see the joy of that obedience together. That is the work of the Spirit in the life of the body of Christ. He produces obedience God has not only called me to obey and given me a list that I can never attain and put me in circumstances that don't give me hope for that. God has called you and I to obedience and then he's given us everything we need to live in the joy of that obedience. And we forget that that's the work of the Spirit because more often than not, we want to argue about the flashy stuff. We want to talk about the sign gifts and whether they continue. We want to get involved in the Facebook debates where we just light each other on fire for the world to see. It's a lot harder to talk about the day-to-day areas where I fail to move in obedience and leading of the Spirit. And yet, God has given us what we need, everything we need for life and godliness, and that includes the gifts. But when we see them in that context, now we can see that those spiritual gifts are just another natural outworking of our obedient response to God in every circumstance. But from producing good fruit, now we can look at the idea that the Spirit gives these gifts to be a blessing to the body of Christ. We are a church that works according to the spiritual gifts that God has graciously given. And as I said, there are books and conferences and podcasts all over that can fill in every gap that might be here today. And we are not going to cover all of this exhaustively, but we can cover the fundamental, foundational, biblical, non-negotiable principles fairly quickly. Again, given the audience fairly quickly-ish. But the first thing we have to understand is the purpose of the gifts. Because if we don't know the purpose of the gifts, then when it comes to the practice of the gifts, we're going to be starting in the completely wrong place. Let's continue in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now stop there just a moment because there's a couple of things I want to make sure we don't miss. First of all, this is the gathering of the Feast of Pentecost. This is one of those times when Jews, 12 and older, males, but often they would bring their families, were expected to gather in Jerusalem. And so the size of the city explodes, basically, as people come for a particular purpose of worship. And they're drawn, it says, from 
every nation, there is a collection of Jews from a number of different places. You ever wonder why Jesus said, wait here in Jerusalem? There's a lot of movement in that 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. Didn't he call them up to a mountain in Galilee to give them the go? Why didn't he say, wait here in Galilee? Why don't you go back to Capernaum where you're familiar with the people and the layout? Why is it that Jesus says, stay here in Jerusalem? You know why? Because when God pours out his gifts on his disciples, he is going to do that to accomplish his purposes. Because he is going to enable them to do exactly what he intends for them to do. Because the gifts are not given for the building up of the individual disciples They are given for the glory of God and for the building up of His church. And from Acts chapter 2, from the very beginning, we see that is what the gifts do. They honor God and they build the church. They glorify God and they equip His people. Those are the fundamental, foundational purposes of the spiritual gifts. And that is a foundational reality that we have to have in place. The multitude, they come together and they hear the disciples speaking in their own language and they are amazed They're amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues. What do we hear them telling? The mighty works of God. When the Spirit comes on the disciples, when the Spirit gives them these tongues to speak in the languages of these gathered Jews, what does the Spirit tell these people? Here's how to live your best life. Here's what you need to get you through the day. No. When the Spirit speaks, He speaks of the mighty works of God, and that should not be surprising. Because that is exactly what Jesus said the Spirit would do. We read through John chapter 13, 14, and 15 a bit last week as we talked about that upper room, the the prayer that he prayed when he's giving them those final instructions before the cross. And in John chapter 15, Jesus says that when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, that he will bear witness about him. The Holy Spirit will bear witness about Jesus Christ. In John 16, Jesus says that the Spirit doesn't speak on his own authority. He says, the Spirit speaks and declares the things of God. Jesus says, the Spirit will glorify me and He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will take what Christ has taught and give it to the disciples. The Holy Spirit, when He speaks, will glorify Christ. The Spirit shares the same purpose as the Father and the Son. And so when they open their mouth, that is exactly what comes out. We focus on the languages. Don't get caught up on the languages. That's fairly clear in the text. Known languages to the gathered people. But what about the content? When he opened their mouths and allowed them to speak in tongues, what was the purpose? Proclaiming the gospel. Making disciples of every nation. How familiar does that sound? He opened their mouths. He gifted them so that they might carry out the purpose that God had called them to. Why else does the Spirit provide these gifts? Not only to glorify God, but to build up the body. I mean, practically, what do you have here in Acts 2? Jews who are scattered all over. And you know what they hear? They hear the same message in their language. They hear of this one God who saves. Now, as you move through the rest of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes on people in some remarkable ways. And it happens at specific times. And 
it leads some people to think that we still look for this falling on the spirit of people in these demonstrable ways, and really that's a function of misunderstanding why the Spirit does what he does in the book of Acts. Jesus says, you will do a particular thing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is so important as you read through the book of Acts, because what do you see in Acts chapter 2? The Spirit coming upon the disciples and then preaching to gather Jews in Jerusalem. And then you fast forward and you move to Acts chapter 8. And you have the gospel preached in Samaria. And you have people that believe and are baptized, but the Spirit doesn't come upon them until, it says, until apostles from Jerusalem send Peter and John and they lay their hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Why is there a delay? Well, what did Jews think about Samaritans? They thought so low of them that they would take the long way around Samaria if you had to get to Jerusalem. They hated them. They were half-breeds. They were less than. And now what do you have? In Acts chapter 8, that same spirit who came on the Jews in Acts chapter 2 now comes on Samaritans. And not just in the presence of anybody, but now the apostles see this. What do you see? You see the church being built, the same spirit for Jew and Samaritan. And then you fast forward to Acts chapter 10. And there's a God-fearing Gentile centurion named Cornelius. And he sends for Peter. And Peter has a vision. Foods that he would consider unclean, God says, take and eat. And Peter wrestles with what this means. And then the men from Cornelius come and they invite him to Cornelius' home. And Peter preaches. And Peter says that the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in this Jesus will receive forgiveness through his name. And Cornelius and his household believe. And the Spirit falls on them. And it says that Peter and the Jews that were with him were amazed. Why? Because now this same Spirit that was given to the Jews... And then unbelievably, the Samaritans has now been given to the Gentiles. Back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We want to take Acts and we want to say, well, this is how it should happen. No, no. It happened the way it happened because God was proving that he was faithful to do exactly what he said that he would do. When God pours out his gifts on the church, it is a mark of his faithfulness to accomplish his purposes among the people that he said he would do it to. The ones who struggle to understand this, namely the disciples, would need to see it working out in this visible way because this Holy Spirit is the unifying unifying factor in this new thing called the church, which is why Paul spends so much time in Ephesians 4 talking about that unity and founding it in the Spirit. That's why he says in Ephesians 4, 4, there's one body, one Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that indwells every member of the church. That's why in Ephesians 4, verse 11, Paul says that he gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. The Spirit gives these varied gifts. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. The same Spirit is given to the church for the unity of the church. That Spirit gives gifts to the church for the blessing and the building up and the maturity of the church. The gifts are for the body and the gifts are given to glorify God. Foundational, 
non-negotiables that then shape the way we see everything else when we talk about the gifts. And the last thing that we want to look at then, more briefly again, than some might want, is the practice of the gifts. So what does it look like to function within the spiritual gifts? If they're given for the building up of the body and for the glory of God, then what is that practically going to look like? And when it comes to the practice of the spiritual gifts, again, this produces a lot of division. And when we come to the practice of the spiritual gifts, we have to understand that you and I need a common authority. You and I need a common place to start when we talk about the practice of the gifts. What do I mean by that? I mean when it comes to the spiritual gifts, we don't start with what we think, what we feel, or even what we've experienced. We have to start with an objective truth, and that is God's Word. In other words, just because I think or feel or have seen something doesn't mean it's from God. Just because this is the way I've always done something, this is because this is what my tradition says, this is what a, a valued teacher has taught me, doesn't mean that that is from God. Th this has to be our standard. This has to be the starting place for all of our discussions, and then we can have those sharpening, edifying, encouraging discussions. So when it comes to Acts 2, what do we see? We see the apostles speak, and men hear them in their own languages. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll come to verse 14. But what you need to understand is that even this gift in Acts chapter 2 functions as God's word says it does. God's word validates itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says that tongues are a sign not to believers, but to unbelievers. And what do we see in Acts chapter 2? That's exactly what happened. These tongues come upon the disciples so that they preach the gospel in these known languages for the purpose of calling non-believers to faith. When we find our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to talk about three foundational principles of the practice of the gifts. Paul's talking to a church that he loves, but it's a church that's in crisis. There's not much that they're getting right. They struggle with unity, they struggle with how to deal with sin, they struggle with relationships, and they struggle with how they use the spiritual gifts that are present in their church. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Paul writes this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What do you see in there? First of all, gifts are given to each believer. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. There is no such thing as an ungifted believer. Every believer has a gift. And what's that gift for? He says the Spirit gives those gifts for the common good. Every believer is given a gift for the common good. And then look down at verse 11. And all these gifts, as varied and different as they are, are empowered by one and the same Spirit. And it's this Spirit who apportions or gives to each one individually as He wills. These gifts are a gift of the sovereignty and divine will of God. There is no spiritual drop-down menu where you choose your own gift based on what you would like to see. By the way, that's good news. You and I design a church with the gifts that we want and it doesn't work. 
God calls together a group of people and gifts them exactly as he sovereignly intends, and the church is able to do exactly what he wants it to. But you put those three things together, that every believer is gifted, that every gift is given for the common good, that every gift is given under the sovereign wisdom of God, and you have this foundational principle that says every gift and every believer is necessary. There is not an unimportant member of the body because there is not an unnecessary gift. That's what he goes on to say in verses 14 through 20. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If every gift were the same, the body would not function. Kids, you have great imaginations. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment. You ready? A body that is made entirely of eyes. Parents, you can imagine as well. What would that be like? Kids, what would that be like if the body was made entirely of eyes? Anybody got an answer? Scary, right? First of all, that'd be a creepy thing. But you know what else that body would be? It'd be dead. As weird and creepy as it is, pick a body made of eyes, ears, noses, whatever you want. That body is a dead body because it cannot function in the way that it needs to. If the church was all given the same gifts, that church would be a dead church because it could not function with the beautiful diversity that God designed. Verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Our more presentable parts don't require that. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You stub your toe, and you do not say, gut it out, toe, hope you get over that. No, your whole body goes, ah, my toe! The body suffers together. You get a soccer player who has an unbelievable foot who can kick it more than it. Do they like cut off his foot and exalt the foot? No, they exalt the whole body, the whole soccer player. I don't like soccer, but that's all right. The world's game. We honor the body as a body. We suffer in the body as a body. The gifts are for the body. The gifts are given to glorify God. And the body is mutually dependent on one another. Turn over to chapter 13. I want you to see the second major principle. First major principle, every gift is necessary, therefore every believer in the body is necessary. Not because of what we are, but because of what the Spirit has placed within us. Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a very popular chapter, almost always read without its context being in the spiritual gift. But look at how 1 Corinthians 13 starts. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, 
and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You can have the most remarkable, the most showy, the most miraculous gift, and if you do not, do not have love, it means nothing. You can be so generous, morally admirable, and without love, it is not only empty, it is useless, eternally insignificant. Here's the second major principle. Whatever your gift is, the motivation for using it must be love. Not love for you, not love for the gift, love for God and for others. In other words, I use my gift in a way that is patient, in a way that is kind, in a way that is not envious, in a way that does not boast, in a way that's not proud, is not rude, is not self-seeking. I use my gift in a way that loves and honors truth and doesn't rejoice in evil. Verse 20, well, I'm sorry. If you go down a little bit further in there, here's the reason why. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Your gift, as great and necessary as it is, is only necessary now. You think you're going to need my gift of preaching in heaven? No. Love remains, though. The motivation for using our gifts must be love. And finally, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I want you to find your way to verse 26. Final principle. The spiritual gifts are to be exercised in a way that honors God. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be one or two at most, or let there be one, only two, or at most three, and each in turn. Let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what he said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. But verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You are to use your gift in a way that encourages, exhorts, and enables the corporate worship of the body of Christ. That does not mean that there are not gifts that function privately. Of course there are. But broadly, the gifts are given to enable the worship, the right God-honoring and orderly worship of God's people. Because what do you see when you look at God? Order. From the cell to the movement of the stars, when you look at what God has done, it is orderly and functional and beautiful. So be clear. The church service that is marked by chaos confusion and disorder is not of God. No matter what people feel, no matter what people say, no matter what people think, if it does not mirror the character of God, we can say that it is not of God. The fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. The practice of the gifts is not a loss of self-control. The practice of the spiritual gifts is a God-ordained and enabled self-controlled use of what he has given for the blessing and the benefit of others. It's a lot to say about a heavy-weighted topic. And it's a topic that, although it's given for unity, more often divides than it brings together. But the spiritual gifts are supposed to draw us together. As we understand that we are part of one body, we begin to see each other as necessary. E even that person that you intentionally sit on the other side of the sanctuary from, 
do you realize that you and I are called to thank God for them because they are an absolutely necessary part of what he has called this body to do? That person, and you have that person in your mind, that person is a gracious gift of God to you and to Chapel City. And that ought to change the way we relate to one another. Why do we have the gifts? To honor God and to build up the body. When we talk about the gifts that he's graciously given us, we start where he starts, in his word, with what they're supposed to accomplish and the way that he's supposed to accomplish them. Asking the question, how does this help me to obey God and to love others? Three things for us to think about quickly. First of all, what does your life produce? That There's your discussion question around your tables and in your small groups this week. When I am squeezed, when I am pressed by my circumstances and my situation, what leaks out? Is it the fruit of the flesh or is it the fruit of the Spirit? And you can answer that question fairly specifically, I would assume, because you're going to go through this week and you're going to be pressed. What comes out? Second, where do you work? Such a common question when we meet someone new. Where do you work? When it comes to members of the body of Christ, how are you working? How has God gifted you to work in his body? You say, I don't know. Great news. There's time to figure it out. And you want to know the best tool for figuring out what your spiritual gifting is? It's not an online test or quiz or a spiritual gift inventory, although there's a place for those. I am not completely disparaging them. The best way to get to know your spiritual gift, do something. Serve. There's a need, fill it. And pray and ask God to show you how you move forward in obedience. And sometimes he's going to say, yeah, that wasn't your gifting. Middle school boys, not Matt Round's gifting. Love me some high schoolers, middle schoolers. Give them a couple years. They need to marinate a little longer. But God will show you, he'll reveal to you through how the Spirit leads you, through the input of faithful believers in your life. He'll sharpen, he'll refine, do something. And finally, what's your goal? What is your goal? Is your goal in coming to church, is your goal in being a part of the body, is your goal in using your gift to feel good, to be seen, to be affirmed, or is your goal to become more like Christ and to help the body of Christ become more like Christ? Because remember, that's God's goal for us. He predestined that we should be conformed to the image of his son. That's the promise he made. And guess what the gifts are? They are God's divinely given ability to move us toward his ultimate end. What's your goal? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gifts. Uh, on our own, in our own strength, we fail. And we are reminded time and time again that when we try to do something, even the right things, even the good things on our own strength, that we don't have what we need. But Lord, in your mercy and in your goodness, in our weakness, you're strong. When we move in obedience, even when we're tired, when, we, when we're overwhelmed, when we're hungry, when whatever the circumstance is, when we're in pain, when we choose to move forward in obedience, when we rely on you for help, we find that you give us exactly what we need in the moment. What a good and gracious God you are. So Lord, help us to live lives of obedience, wholly dependent on you, from those things that we would call the little normal everyday obediences to the greater practice of the spiritual gifts for the good of the body. Lord, let us be a people that are dependent on you. In Christ's name, amen.